All right, amazing passage today. We're talking about prophecy. Jesus starts to talk about what's going to happen at the end of the world. He foretells what's going to happen. He gives us this. He gives this somewhere around 35 A.D. I refuse to say C.E., by the way. Uh, common error and before common error. I'm an A.D. B.C. guy. All right, I'm just that way. That's what you're going to hear from me as we make our way through these passages. Um, so Jesus gives these prophecies in 35 A.D. And some of them come true in 70. Some of them come true in 135. Some of them come true at the end of the age. They haven't come true yet. So we're going to be looking at a, a wide range of prophecies that Jesus gives us over this. And we're just taking two passages today in a message that is entitled Amazing Prophecies That Came True. I want to see one, this prophecy, five, verse 5 and 6, that Jesus gives comes true in a very detailed way. I want to look at that. This is really important. And then I want to look at two other Old Testament prophecies that came true in a very detailed way. About 27% of the Bible is prophetic. And a good amount of that has already been fulfilled so that we can look back and see how prophecy was fulfilled, which will help us by applying what was fulfilled to what is yet to be fulfilled. In other words, if everything in the past has been fulfilled literally, why would we all of a sudden think it would be metaphorically from here on out? We want to see how the Bible fulfilled prophecy in the past and how it can be fulfilled in the future. And I also want to say there's no other book, there's no other person that has fulfilled prophecy with great detail like the Bible does. In fact, I'm going to say it's, it's not probable and it's impossible to fulfill prophecies in great detail. If I were to tell you that next year in the Super Bowl, I know the team that's going to win. That's a one in, what is it now, 14 chance? How many, how many, no, how many teams are there? 14, 26? I don't know. I'm, I don't know anymore. Uh, I used to know. Um, but that's, you know, that's pretty good odds. Now, if I were to tell you when we got closer, we, that we know the teams that are in the Super Bowl, who's going to win, you're not going to be as impressed. If I tell you now who's going to win the Super Bowl, you might be, wow, that's pretty good. But if I told you right before the Super Bowl, this team's going to win, and in the last minute of the game, in one play, there's going to be three fumbles that's going to change teams. And then on the final fumble, it will be on the one yard line and they're going to run it back 99 yards for the win. And I told you that you'd probably go, yeah, we'll just see. But what if you were watching it and it happened? You're like one fumble, two fumbles, three fumbles, one yard line. Touchdown! Robert knows the future, right? And I can tell you, when you talk about people that are known to know the future, Edgar Cayce, Nostradamus, um, a, a few others, uh, that they don't give detailed prophecies. If you think that Nostradamus told the future, then you need to read his quatrains. They're very cryptic. And the more cryptic something is, the easier it is to be fit into an event in history. For example, they say that he foretold Hitler but he didn't use the word Hitler, he used the word Hister. And there is a river in Germany named Hister. And that quatrain, when you read it, it's like, yeah, you can make it fit, but it's an awkward fit. It, it's, it, you can look at it from the point of view of history and then look back to try to make it fit. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible isn't nebulous. The Bible is very detailed. And if it foretells detailed prophecy, then we should step up and listen to it. If indeed it gives detail and then it comes to pass, 
we should go, this is amazing and I should listen to it. In other words, I'm saying that if the Bible is true prophetically, then we should trust it spiritually. That's true geographically, historically, and scientifically as well. If the Bible is true, true ge geographically, all of the events in the Bible, I love when, when the critics will say of the Bible, well, you know, that's just written, that's myth written by Bronze Age goat herders. I don't know, maybe some of the men in the Bible were goat herders, possibly. What do you got against goat herders anyway? But myths from Bronze Age goat herders, when you look at myths, myths don't take place in real places. You can go to Israel today and you can see where, play th where the places are, where things happened in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, even Exodus, Deuteronomy, even Genesis. You can go to the places that these things happened and you find that when it gives you the lay of the land, the authors knew the lay of the land. It's accurate geographically. It's accurate historically. The more archaeology that is discovered, the more we are discovering that the accounts in the Bible are true. The criticism has been that the, the Jewish people wrote the, the Old Testament when they were in captivity in Babylon because they wanted a right to the land. They wrote the Bible to give them a right to the land and it was made up history. David never existed. Abraham never existed. Moses never existed. All of these were, were just made up. Now, there are several problems with it. And I won't talk about all of the problems with that today, but I will say this. Archaeology has discovered some amazing finds that prove to us that they were in the land and that these people existed. They know David existed now. But instead of saying he was a grand king, they'll say he was a village chieftain. So anytime they find evidence, they just try to reach to change it a little bit, but they don't go all the way over to it. There is the Sennacherib cylinders that were found. Sennacherib was a king in Nineveh and he attacked Israel. And we have the account in the Bible. He took Israel. He took the cities of Judah, but he did not take Jerusalem. In the Sennacherib cylinders, which they found just a, a little while ago, is the story from Sennacherib's point of view. And he tells the same story. There are different details because, you know, the writers of history write their history. It's one of the reasons that we know that the Bible is more true because it paints a bad picture of everybody that's in it. It doesn't brag about Moses and Abraham and these guys. It says Moses had problems. Abraham had problems. And um, we also have the Moabite stone, which is an account of a, Mo a Moabite war with Israel told exactly as it happened from their perspective, from their point of view. And so history is telling us they have found on Mount Eber in Jerusalem a curse tablet that has the name of Yahweh on it three times from the late bronze period, 1400 years before Christ, not BCE, before Christ, 1400 years before Christ, that has the name of Yahweh on it three times, found on Mount Eber. Eber was the curse mountain. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 says they went into the land under Joshua, that they got on Mount Eber and on Mount Gerizim, and they yelled blessings from Mount Gerizim and curses from Mount Eber, and they find a curse tablet on Mount Gerizim that dates to the days of Joshua. If the Bible is true geographically, historically, and prophetically, and even when it ventures into the realm of science, scientifically. See, people will criticize the Bible because the Bible says in the days of Joshua, the sun stood still. And they'll say things like this. Here's a professor. Well, these silly Christians don't realize that the sun's not moving. So there's no way it could stand still in the sky. It, um, the earth is spinning and they should know that. And the men of the Bible didn't know that. 
So that's why they said the earth stood still. And I would say, silly professor, you just said there was a beautiful sunset. Don't you realize that the sun doesn't set? Don't you realize that the earth's spinning? You ought to say, what a beautiful evening earth spin, if you want to be accurate. <laughs> silly professors. They wrote it from their perspective. And, they, and the Bible is criticized as being non-scientific because it writes it from human perspective. All history is from human perspective. Every, even we write it from our perspective. We talk about the skies from the way that we see it, not the reality of what's happening there. But when the Bible ventured into the realm of hydrology, which it does, water comes from the oceans, it says, up onto the mountains, into the rivers, and back into the sea. That wasn't even understood. This is the book of Job. And it's accurate. Wind currents are accurate. So when it does, it's not a scientific book. When it ventures into the realm of science, it's incredibly accurate, which is absolutely amazing. I'm sorry, flat earthers, but it does talk about the earth being a globe hung on nothing in space. I'm sorry for those that, that read the four corners of the earth. It's just talking about the far distances of the earth. I didn't offend anybody, did I? Flat earthers would get up and walk out. I didn't know there's so many of you. I thought I was safe <laughs> offending the flat earthers that were out there. All right, so um, if it's geographically, historically, scientifically accurate, we can trust it spiritually. What does it tell us to do? How are we supposed to live? Jesus was preaching and a woman cried out, blessed is the, the womb that bore you and the breast that nurse you. And Jesus said, yes, but more so those who hear my word and do it. We are more blessed than Mary when we hear his word and do it, that tells us the significance of scripture. And prophecy is God's calling card. It's his signature. He signed it. God said in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me telling the end from the beginning and telling you things that happen before they happen. So God is in the business of telling the future. No one else can do that. No other religious book does it. Only the Bible does it. No other person does it in detail. They make guesses every year. Psychics make guesses every year, but they're not 100% correct. They're making their guesses and some of them are accurate. And a lot of times it's the 50% ones that are accurate. I, I predict that a you know, Republican is going to win the next presidential election. All right, 50-50 chance. I don't know that that's that impressive. All right, so let's consider these three prophecies. So the title of our message today is Amazing Bible Prophecies That Came True. And I want to look at three of them. The first one is our text. And what I want you to note about these prophecies is the detail that's given and how they came true. They came true in a literal way. I don't know of any Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled metaphorically. They were all fulfilled literally. In other words, when it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. That was literal. When it says God called him out of Egypt, Joseph had fled to Egypt with Mary and Jesus, and God called him literally out of Egypt. And we could go to, every, when they, they are gonna, they're going to divide his garment, or they're going to divide his clothes, and for his gar garment, they're going to cast lots. That literally happened when he was crucified. And we could go on and on with prophecies. They are fulfilled literally, and I want you to notice that this is fulfilled literally. This is important because people will look in the future and they'll say, well, that's metaphor. That it's not literally a thousand years. It's not literally 144,000 Jews of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why up until our point in history has everything that's been fulfilled been fulfilled literally and everything from our fish this point forward is now going to be metaphors. If it's, if biblically it's literal, then we want to be as literal as we can. Now I realize 
that there's passages that talk about a beast coming up out of the water with ten head, or seven heads and ten horns and a, a, a harlot riding the beast. And you go, you're going to take that literally, Robert? No. When it's obviously literal, you take, you, you, I mean, it's obviously a metaphor. You take it as a metaphor. We're smart enough to go to know, I've never seen a beast like that. That's not a real beast. When it says Jesus returns on a horse, there's no reason to think it's a metaphor for something else, but that he doesn't return actually on a horse. So, okay, so we're gonna, that's one of the things we're going to learn as we look at these. But the amazing thing here is these detailed prophecies that came true that should really make us trust what the Scripture says. So the first prediction is Jesus predicting what's going to happen to the stones on the Temple Mount. The Temple was built by King Herod. Herod is called the King of the Jews, but he's an Edomite. And he went into huge building projects. He taxed the people of Judea and Galilee to build them. The temple that he built, he, he leveled Solomon's temple and then put new foundations down and built a grand, monstrous building. Ten stories tall, gold band on the top, giant pillars, porches and porticos all the way around it. So that when you were on the, the Mount of Olivet and you looked over at the temple, it was massively impressive. The stones of the temple were huge. They were quarried and they were drug up that mountain and they were put into place. They were not small little, a bunch of small little stones. It was a building feat to put these stones together without any mortar and to actually build the building with these large stones. You can go and see some of these large stones in the retaining wall around Jerusalem today from the days of Herod, that, that King Herod used to build it. And so it says in verse 5, and remember Jesus said just rebuke the scribes and Pharisees. His last public sermon was, you know, you, you scribes and Pharisees, you love greetings in the marketplace, you devour widows' homes. And then he watched a widow give all of her livelihood into the treasury, which really is a, is a, a, a stance against what Judaism had become in their day, what temple worship had become that they would take the very livelihood of a widow and, and, and in order for her to be right with God, she had to do that. And it would speak to us today. We talked about that, what it speaks to us today. And so they're walking away. They're going over to Mount Olivet where they're going to have the discussion about prophecy. And here's what it says. Verse 5 of Luke 21. Then as some of the temple, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Another version says offerings. They're talking about how beautiful it is and how much money it took to build it, how it brought all of Judea and Galilee through Herod into poverty. Then, it, then Jesus says, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I don't know that we can have a prophecy like this today because of our machinery. You could take any building that's a grand building and it could be torn down. You could take the Empire State Building and teams will go in and put explosives in the right places and they'll explode it so it will drop straight down and then machines will come in and clear everything out and it could be done within a period of time that's pretty rapid. But don't think about it in our terms, think in their terms. How are those big grand stones on the temple going to be shoved off? And today, when you go to the Temple Mount, there is not one stone there upon another. Now, here's the knock against this prophecy. They say he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that happened in 70 AD. This is, is spoken of in the book of Mark as well. And they'll say that Mark was written in 70 AD. Now, 
that's a late date. And the only reason they give it the late date is because there's a prophecy about the destruction of the temple in it. So they say they're writing this from the point of view of having known it. So they give it a late date, 70 AD. Here's their problem. Jesus didn't say that the temple was going to be destroyed. He said what not one stone was going to be left upon another. And although in 70 AD, the Romans did push stones off the temple mount, they didn't push them all off. There were three Jewish revolts in total. The first one in 70 AD, the last one in the second century, 135 AD. That's where they scraped the temple clean a hundred years after Jesus gave the prediction. You might be able to stretch it to 70 and say, well, Mark knew it. And so he wrote about it because he knew it was going to happen. But you can't stretch the book of Mark to 135. There's no way you can do that. And so this prophecy literally came true. Jesus predicted it literally and it came true. And you would have never have thought it in your day. It would have been a shocking thing. Like, how is this grand building? How is this grand structure? not going to have one stone left upon another and be scraped clean. So when you go to Israel and you stand on the Temple Mount, you think of this verse. Jesus foretold the future. He was a prophet and it came to pass just as he said. And the other passages that he says are going to come to pass as the Son of Man returns, as lightning is from the east and the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Everything else Jesus says will come to pass. The second prophecy I want to go to is one in the Old Testament. And it's an amazing prophecy about the destruction of the city of Tyre. Tyre during the period of the Old Testament, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king who destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple. Nebuchadnezzar was the first worldwide king. Before him, there was no one who reigned the entire world. Nebuchadnezzar did it. And then under the Medo-Persian Empire, um, Artaxerxes did it. Then under the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great did it. And then, of course, uh, the first emperor was Augustus under the Roman Empire and the Antichrist will be under the revived Roman Empire. Those are the only world rulers that we have. Those five were the were the the uh, and Rome, of course, had a lot more rulers than that. But they were the main um, uh, countries that ruled the world. And Tyre was this huge city. It was a port city. It was a trade city. They had built a giant port. And this is Lebanon. It was a Phoenician, um, a Phoenician city. And they would bring in ships and they would take the cedars of Lebanon and other riches that came from the Middle East and that kind of like that, that uh, below Turkey area. And even up into Turkey, and they would bring them back and it would ship them out all over the world. It was a wealthy city. It was a huge city. It had walls and towers that were built around the city. And about a half mile out in the water, there was an island. And the island had walls around it and boats went back, ships went back and forth from the island to the mainland. And it was impregnable. It was said it could, the tire bragged that they could not be taken. When kings had tried to attack it, they would not be taken. They bragged about it. And so God said this to Tyre. Tyre is this huge, impressive city. In verse three of Ezekiel 26, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will cause many nations to come against you. Notice many nations, not just one, many nations to come against you as the sea causes its waves to come up and they destroy the walls of Tyre and break down the towers. They fought the battering of the seas 
against their ports and against their walls and against their towers that caused them to deteriorate. And so he says, as the waters do that, I'm going to bring armies up against you and they're going to break down your walls and they're going to break down your towers. He goes on to say, I will scrape her dust from her. I will make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord. Your glory from a grand port trade city is going to be down to a fishing village. That's what he's saying. A place where fishermen spread their nets. And so he gives detail now. He says, therefore, uh, excuse me. He says, uh, well, we'll continue reading. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will bring against Tyre the, uh, from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king of kings. He's called the king of kings because he's the first world king. And so it says with horses, with chariots and with horsemen, with an army of many peoples, he will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. There were there were there was the main city with its walls. Then there were daughter villages that were out there. And a lot of people would come into the city when there would be an army that would come and attack. Nebuchadnezzar had a huge army, but no ships. That's really important as this unfolds. It says he will heap up a siege mound against you. He will build a wall against you and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls. And with his axes, he will bring down your towers because of the abundance of his horses. The dust will cover the walls will shake the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, the chariots, when he enters the gates, as men enter the city that have been breached with the hooves of the horses, will trample the streets. He will slay your people by the sword and the young strong pillars will fall to the ground and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now that's all what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. He will, he will, he will, he will. But then the very next verse changes to they. So now he changes to the other nations that will come against you. Nebuchadnezzar sieged the city of Tyre for over a decade. That's a long time to siege a city. When you, when you cut off a city, you're expecting it to happen fast. They're going to run out of food. They're going to run out of water. They're going to have a sickness. They're going to have a disease. They're going to wave a white flag. They're going to get desperate and try something and you're going to be able to get in. They're going to let down their defenses. But they had ships and an island a half a mile off the off the coast. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have any ships because he's from Babylon. There are no ships in Babylon. He had no ships. He had no navy. Had a huge army. He was conquering the world. But he had no ships. And so they were able to bring in food and fresh water through the ships. And so it took them 10 years. And over time, they moved people off of the mainland and onto the island so that most people were on the island when Nebuchadnezzar finally breached the walls, which took him somewhere around 13 years to do which is an incredibly long time to siege. Jerusalem was sieged by Titus for four years. That's a long time. But for 13 years, that's how big the city was. That's how impressive the walls were. That's how impressive the towers were. And when they moved out to the city and he breached the cities and he trampled the streets and he looked out to the, the half mile to the island that was out in the water, he was like, see ya. He wasn't now going to figure out a way to be able to take that city after spending 13 years taking the city of Tyre. So he left it. 200 years later, here comes another world leader by the name of Alexander the Great. He's marching down the coast as he's conquering the world. He's asking people for, uh, for commitment to him. He wants them to say, you're the king. We're going to pay you taxes. You're in charge. So when he gets to Tyre, Tyre's very prideful. 
they've been, they've been attacked by many cities and they still have their island city that's out there. And they're very prideful. So he sends an, env an envoy in to say, give us visit, visit uh, tell us that you're going to serve us and you're going to give us access. And they take his messengers, go up on the city walls on the island, cut their throats and toss them into the water. How do you think Alexander the Great took that? Alexander the Great is like, I'm, I'm taking that city. And so he commanded that they would take the bricks of the city of old Tyre and throw them in the water, cut down the trees around and throw them in the water. And they, you can look this up in history. This is history confirming the Bible. They, they built a causeway and they put their siege engines on it and they went and they broke down the walls and they took the island city of Tyre and he massacred the people that were there. He was like, you're gonna kill my man? And, and, and Alexander the Great, if they would say, okay, you're in charge, he would let the city go. But he massacred the city. Listen to what it says now as it turns from he, Nebuchadnezzar, to they, which we'll see is Alexander the Great. They will plunder, this is verse 12, they will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy the pleasant houses. They will lay, they will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. What would cause someone to take the timber of Tyre and, and, the, and the stones from the city and throw it into the water? He goes on to say, I will put an end to the sound of songs, to the sound of harps will be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, your God have spoken. And that's exactly what happened. Now, when you bring this up to Bible critics, and I do like to bring this one up because it's so detailed, you bring it up, they're going to say two things. Number one, they're going to say, well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that. Alexander the Great did. And at that point, you got to go back and go, let's read the text. Because it doesn't say Alexander the Great does it all. It says nations are going to do it. So, so the text is completely accurate that Alexander the Great came in. It's also amazing that Alexander the Great is in Scripture through a prophecy of throwing you know, logs in the sea. The second thing they say is that it was rebuilt. And I have seen videos of people driving by Tyre, the city of Tyre today, with their cell phones at the city of Tyre and saying, see, the Bible is inaccurate. There's the city of Tyre. God said it would never be rebuilt again. Well, let's consider that for a moment. First of all, let's consider what rebuild means. This is the Miriam Dictionary for rebuilding. God didn't say the city will, will never, have, never have anybody live in it. He didn't say no one would build around the city. He said it would never be rebuilt. Here's the Merriam Dictionary on rebuilding. So definition of rebuild, to make an extensive repairs, to reconstruct, rebuild a worn out city, to restore to a previous state, to rebuild, to make extensive changes, remodel, or rebuild a society. So it gives the different means to rebuild. You have to have something there to rebuild. So the island city is here. The new city of Tyre is here. The old city of Tyre was here. It was south of it. And it's a, it's a reserve today. And it's a reserve to protect a mouse. I'm not making it up. I did some more research last night after the service and um, I, I was reading it to, to Kathy and she said, that's funny. I said, yeah, it's being protected from being built on because of a mouse they want to protect. 
so that they did not rebuild the old city. The island, there was an earthquake that sunk the island. When you look at it today on Google Maps, you see the causeway that goes out and silt has built up around the causeway that Alexander the Great built, but the island itself has sunk. And in history, there are people that went and said, there's new tire and there's old tire. They were able to look at it. Some believe it was, they could see it under the water before it sunk completely out of, out of view. They could see the old city of Tyre and the new city and they talked about it. I have a 2012 Dodge Charger. It helps me get back and forth from campuses. For you police officers, I sh I, I'm not going to say it's not true. All right. Uh, it has helped me get back and forth from campuses. There's some truth to that. Uh, I don't have a, it was a brand new Charger. It was 2012, brand new Charger. It was based on the late 60s charger, but it's not a rebuilt charger. There, it's connected. There are things that are similar. Mine's fast. They were fast. <laughs> Any of you guys have chargers, by the way? Just, uh, did you have chargers back? I'm talking back in the 60s. Any of you guys have them? There was nobody in the first service. Nobody again? Nobody had a charger at all. Challenger? Roadrunner? Hey, finally, we got one. Wow. Mopars. People don't like Mopars. You guys didn't like Mopars when you were younger. Bet you had Camaros. All right. So in order to rebuild a, a charger, you have to have part of a charger. You can't call it a rebuilt charger. You could go and get parts that look like the 60s chargers, and you could build a new charger from those parts, but it's not a rebuilt charger. It's, it's, a, it's not a restored charger. You can't say that. You would say it's a new charger that's based on the old chargers. There's some things you could say, but you can't say certain things. So the old city sunk, number one. Number two, it's not in the same place as the old city. Number three, it has no parts of the old city in it. And number four, historical references, old tire and new tire. It still is not rebuilt. It doesn't say there wouldn't be fishermen on it. In fact, it would be continuous. There would be fishermen on it. It'd be a place where they spread their nets. And so one of the things about Tyre is it's called the oldest occupied city in the world. But it was only occupied by small villages. And you can go back to the late, early 1900s and you can see the small village that is built on the causeway. And for years, it was left completely desolate. And there is a city there now, but it's not built in the same place. But that's the knock they're going to give you. Now, let me quickly, because <laughs> I'm completely out of time. Uh, let me quickly go to the last, the last prophecy. And this is an amazing prophecy that God was going to scatter Israel around the world, that it was going to become completely desolate for a long time. And then God in the last days was going to bring Israel back into the land. Israel came back into the land and became a nation in 1948. They were driven from the land really in, in 135, 70 AD was the start of it. But in 135, they were dispersed from the land. It was made desolate by the Ottomans. During the Crusades, the Ottomans gained control of it for a while and they salted the land. They cut down the trees. They literally made the land desolate. So the trees that are planted there today were planted. They are not descendants from trees that were in Israel because they were all cut down. They completely devastated the land. Let me read you a couple passages. First of all, the destruction of Israel. This is Zechariah 7:14. But I scattered them with the whirlwind among the nations, which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, 
for they made the pleasant land desolate. That's the first prophecy, and there's many more like that, that the land would become destroyed, and it did. In, in the early, late 1800s, Jewish people began buying the land of Israel again, began planting trees, began draining the, stromps, draining the swamps, began uh, agricultural works. In Ezekiel 36, 18 and 19, still the destruction and the dispersing of the people, it says, Therefore I poured out my fury on them, for the blood they had shed on the land and for the idols which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And Jewish people were scattered throughout, throughout the Middle East originally, even though there's none in Iraq today because of persecution. They were originally scattered throughout the Middle East. They were scattered into Europe. They were scattered all around the world. So God said he would scatter them and he would make the land desolate. And that's exactly what happened. But then he promises he's going to bring them back in the last days. When people say to me, how do you know we're living in the last days? I have no doubt because Israel's a nation. Israel became a nation in 1948. The only nation to ever be a nation, not be a nation and be a nation again. They spoke Hebrew. Hebrew was lost, the language. And then they revived it and they speak Hebrew again today. In Hosea 3, 4, it says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, a prince, without sacrifice, a sacred pillar, without an ephod, an ephod or a teraphim. Those are all Jewish things. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord in his goodness in the latter days. They're going to return and seek God once again in the latter days. Ezekiel 38, 8, 9 says, and for many days you will be visited. And, and, and this is that you're apart from the land for many days and then you will be visited. God's going to visit you. And then it says in the latter years, here we are again, the latter days, the latter years, you will come into the land to, of those brought back from the sword and gathered from among the peoples on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend and come like a storm. You will cover the land like a cloud. You and your troops and many peoples with you. There are 6.5 million Jewish people in Israel today. In the early 1900s, there was a few thousand. They have come like a cloud and they have covered the land. And it says their troops, they would become militarily strong again. And there are several passages that say that. Israel is arguably the second most powerful nation militarily in the world. Second only to the United States. We are the only remaining superpower in the world today. And we didn't become a superpower until after 1950 or the only superpower until after 1950. And it was interesting that in 1948, they became a nation and we supported them in their war of independence. We took a lot of the military equipment that we used in World War II and gave it to Israel in their war in independence. And some say, well, then Israel wouldn't be a nation and, and powerful today if it wasn't for the United States. And I might argue that we wouldn't be a powerful nation if it wasn't for Israel. Because God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And they are a land. Jesus himself said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jerusalem was almost barren. Mark Twain went there in the 1800s, talked about how silly and barren it was. Today, it is the capital of Israel. 
Jerusalem once again. And it is under Israeli control. Jesus said it would be trampled foot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Are we at the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled? And if we are, what does that mean? Let me give you one more verse. And it talks about Israel being restored in the latter days again. This is why we call the nation of Israel becoming a nation the super sign of God. He's showing us that some, we're, we are the first generation to have Israel in the world again since 70 AD or 135 AD. We're the first nation since then to have it a nation again. So God is speaking here to a king that he's going to bring against Israel in the future from us yet. And he says, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud and cover the land. It will be in the latter days. He talks about them coming back in the land in the latter years. But in the latter days, this battle is going to take place. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know that I am hollowed in you, O Gog, before your eyes. So this is the Gog and Magog war that's going to happen in the last days. Israel would become a nation in the latter years. If there was no Israel and all the other things were coming in line and we knew we were living in the last days, but there was no Israel, then you could argue that the Bible hasn't come true. You could argue that it isn't true. But because these things happened exactly as the Bible said, the Bible says Israel would be born again in a day. And in a day when Britain said, you can declare yourself to be a nation, in 1948, they declared themselves to be a nation. And they also offered the Palestinians the same deal. Declare yourself a nation. We'll give you this land. We'll give Israel that land. And the Palestinians refused because they said, as long as Israel is a nation, we will not, we'll fight until they're not. And the battle still goes on today. And that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that Israel does against the Palestinians. It doesn't mean that because we support Israel or we see God restoring them, that they're doing everything right. Do you agree with everything the United States does? Is there one person here that one person I would just like, I know there's no charger owners in here, but is there one person <laughs> that agrees with everything the government's doing? So we, we're not saying we support them. And some people, sometimes people mistake that. Oh, you think God has restored the nation of Israel and you're happy with what they're doing here, here and here? No, I think that's wrong. But they're people, they're people. It's just that God's restoring them. And God said that he was going to. And he's one day going to restore them to himself. Three things in closing. Number one, the fact that God foretold the future should build your faith. It should allow you to trust more in God's word, to learn more about what God's word says, to learn more about eschatology, to learn more about soteriology. These are theological terms for salvation, for, uh, for the last study of the last days. The Bible is a wealth of information. It is so rich and incredible. And we have barely begun to scratch the surface on learning what's in it. And I hope you catch fire for wanting to know the word of God and learning it because that's what our heart is. Our heart is to learn what the Bible says, to teach it so that it is clear, so that we have a clear understanding. So we'll be more blessed than Mary where we hear and do what's in the word of God. Number two, if God foretold the future and it came true, his word can be trusted. If God could tell the future about a grand city of Tyre, Another reason Tyre hasn't been rebuilt, by the way, is because it was super grand. And if they were going to rebuild it, it would need to be rebuilt to its former state. It would need to be rebuilt as super a super grand city with a super port in it. It doesn't have any of that. But God's word can be trusted. Then we can read it and look at it and, and do it. And God will move in our lives. Number three, the prophecies we will be covering will come to pass as well. We're going to look at prophecies that talk about the future from here. 
God's giving us information into the future as to what is going to happen. And that's pretty amazing. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we can spend here today. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as we take and go through the prophetic aspects of your word. Lord, your word is so rich and powerful and meaningful, and we are so thankful that we can study it and see these amazing things that come true and that your word has survived all of the attacks for so long and stands true even today. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.